Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Objective at our third ever live episode and first ever live from a Lutheran church. Uh, my, co- my guest and I today are both, uh, in, I don't think, uh, servants of God, but uh, I think we've also taken some maybe differing paths uh, away from God. We'll get to it. Let's talk about free speech in time of war. And um, here with me today is a local, well, uh, journalist, politician, all types of things, uh, fighter, really. It's Claire Fox. How are you? I'm very well. Very well, thank you. So uh, there's a war going on. Uh, I, I guess it's Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the question of how much other countries should even uh, take it personally is, is a topic for a, an episode, but it, it raises certain questions because I think RT, the Russian channel, which is largely seen by many as kind of a mouthpiece for the Russian government, uh, has been, I think, taken off the air in many countries and is uh, you know dealing with, I think in some cases, actual government censorship. Um, so let me ask uh, let me ask you this, Claire. In your in your view, if if a basically free country like England were at war with a very uh, not free country, let's say I don't know North Korea, just just to make it interesting, um, and somebody in England is speaking in favor of North Korea, um, issuing propaganda in favor of North Korea, would you would you say the government of England has any business uh, suppressing that speech? Uh- I think that if, you, if we just think about the Ukraine situation, and Zelensky has recently banned opposition parties and merged the media into one, then it's understandable because they are having the country bombed to smithereens, and you can see why the temptation would be that misinformation or disinformation in that context, it's tempting to want to close it down. But I'd like to imagine that I'd fight for free speech regardless. And um, the war, such as it's going on, all of these things require as much conversation as possible. But I do think that the difficulty we've got is that the war between Ukraine and Russia is being used by free countries that are not at war as an excuse for censorship. And that's where, obviously, we, we have to definitely hold the line, yeah? So is that how you see what's going on when uh, Western countries uh, suppress pro-Russian networks? Is that, is that just an excuse they're making because they want to control speech? Well, I mean, it's not... There's, a, there's a, been a, a, an absolute erosion of standards of free speech in the West. We all will have noticed that Putin used that as a sort of part of propaganda last week when he made the point that the West has become degenerate. He allied himself, very cynically, of course, with J.K. Rowling, saying that J.K. Rowling was being cancelled just like Russia was being cancelled. I was glad that J.K. Rowling gave him what for afterwards. But, you know, obviously you give um, the moral authority or some moral authority to those people who we wouldn't agree with by when the free West doesn't act in a free way. And Putin is right in this sense that J.K. Rowling and gender-critical feminists are indeed being cancelled, or there's attempts to cancel speech. So when RT was closed down, 
by Ofcom. So, you know, the government says it's not us, it's Ofcom made the decision. Ofcom is the regulator of, of broadcasting in this country. Um, it, it seems to me that it betrays a lack of confidence in the British public's ability to work through what's true and what's not true. And also, you know, not even so much, it's not about whether RT is saying anything interesting, it's about the rights and freedoms of us as the audience to be able to hear as many different opinions as possible. I'm a great believer in know your enemy anyway, so I mean, even if you were thinking that they were spouting just pro-Russian propaganda, let me hear it so I can work out what it is they think the world is like. So I... I've never been a great fan of RT, but I, I think that we need to have more confidence in our ability to sift the truth. Yeah, I mean, so that all sounds, uh, sounds great, and I think we would agree when, about, you know, so-called cancel culture in, in many cases. But, I mean, when it comes to this, there's an actual war going on. Um, so would you, would you not uh, get RT off the air if they're issuing like pro-Russian propaganda while Russia is invading Ukraine? Well, that's what, what I'm saying is, is that, in the, that Russia is not invading the UK. Um, I do, however, think it's a European war. I don't think it's some local dispute that is just like another little war. By the way, that's a kind of different geopolitical point. But yeah, it, what I'm saying is uh, it is completely more understandable if you're in Ukraine that you do not want information that, for example, might jeopardise civilians or your troops or, or, or all the rest of it. I'm saying I'd hope I'd hold my nerve, but I want to make the distinction between those two things. And I, you know, we've only recently come out of a period in which we were told that Western, well, the whole world was at war against a virus. And the way that the uh, British government posed it was that it was like a war, right? And they were saying, you know, um, it was almost like loose uh, talk costs lives because they said that if, if there was misinformation or disinformation about the virus or about how we responded to the virus or about lockdowns, that this would lead to literal deaths. You know, it was irresponsible in that way. And so you can see how the, the image of war, meaning that you have to close down debate, has been used as an analogy only very recently to justify the censorship of discussion on how we deal with COVID. And so I'm just very anxious not to allow the notion of war means it's okay to censor. But it's also true that war disorientates people. And, uh, I mean, you know, where you stand in relation to this war is, is more complicated when it comes to censorship, I think, than just censorship. Because we've got to two different things happening at the same time. I mean, it's, it's been imbued with all the worst aspects of culture wars for me. I mean, it's sort of horrible. So you, on the one hand, get a kind of mandated speech. If you don't come out with a Ukraine flag on Twitter or you don't say, I think Zelensky's the best thing since sliced bread, um, or indeed if you even query uh, NATO expansionism um, and whether there was any difficulties you want to talk about intelligently or at least raise the complexity of the problems post-Cold War in terms of the West double talk in, in what they said to, the, to Russia, you can be accused of being a NATO apologist, uh, not a NATO, a Putin apologist, a Putin puppet. And we even saw the, um, ho the Secretary of State for Education uh, recently denounce academics who were critical of uh, Ukraine or, or making some critical comments and called, them and called on the university authorities to basically deal with them, to shut them up. And so that's very dangerous for academic freedom. 
On the other side, by the way, there is another side, which is one of the corrupting things that's happened over the last two years in relation to lockdown is that a lot of people have been radicalised in a peculiar way by lockdown because it was the first time maybe they understood the power of the state. They, they, they became very cynical. I understand why, whether you trust anything in the mainstream media, whether any, all politicians are liars, whether they're really attacking civil liberties. Quite a lot of people develop the most sophisticated, well, no, sophisticated is the wrong word, intricate conspiracy theories um, uh, and all the rest of it to the point where you've got a different kind of mandated speech, which is if the, you say that you support Ukraine, suddenly you're a sheeple, you're being conned by the mainstream media, you don't know anything about it. And it drives me mad because both of those sides reduces everything to a real black and white situation. So the more information, the better. But we should recognize there's a kind of information wars going on where we're basically told that if we don't believe every word of Oliver Stone's documentary and believe that Ukraine is full of neo-Nazis, that we are people who are incapable of critical thought. And there is a very strong group of free speechers who've gone down that route, and it's a bit disconcerting. Oh, I mean, the layers of irony are endless at this point. I mean, good Lord. I mean, for years, uh, it was, you know, the leftists saying, hey, we're going to punch every Nazi, and who's a Nazi is whoever is not with us, and we're going to punch them. And, and the reactionaries are, would say, oh, come on, you can't use violence. Uh, you, can't, you can't punch, you know, who, anyone you think is a Nazi. And now we've got Putin saying he's going to denazify Ukraine, and, but now it's like almost like they've switched places, right? Like it's like the reactionary right um, standing by Putin, saying, "Yeah, get get out there and denazify." I mean, it's the the irony is uh, is palpable. But um, but I want to ask again, or I want to clarify, if if it's true that uh, Ukraine is justified to temporarily sort of suspend the media in a time of war, and if this is a European war more than just a regional conflict, then does that mean that Western governments uh, do have some business uh, in some ways suppressing maybe pro-Russian propaganda? No. So when I say it's a European war, I mean in the sense that it's of, region, it's of greater significance than simply a regional conflict. I think we are seeing potentially the unraveling of the post-war arrangements. I think this is the, the start of a, a, a reorganization of geopolitics. There's a lot at stake. Um, I think that um, it's not so much the West, it's not so much the West at stake, and maybe we can go on to that, but it's Western values certainly on the line uh, uh, to a certain extent. And I, in that sense, I'm very uncompromising in my own support for uh, Ukraine against uh, a Russian full-scale invasion. So, you know, there's wars all the time and they sometimes are brutal and nasty, and you might say no intervention, n nothing to do with us, you know, keep well away. But this is uh, of a different order, right? But that's different than saying, when I, and by the way, I'm saying I don't know, I'm just being honest, I don't know if I was, if I was fighting a war, physically fighting a war, I understand there's more justification for saying if there's you know, a pro-Russian group who are basically organizing internal insurrection up the road from you, right? You know what I mean? If you've got, like, local radio station 
in Kiev where the radio station is saying, meet under the bridge, <laughs> you know, with Molotov um, caricaturing, but, you know, so that we can defend or kind of completely demoralizing. You, at least in that extremist situation, understand the temptation to. I'm saying I still hope I'd keep my nerve. But there's absolutely no justification in any of the country because that misinformation and the concept of misinformation is at the moment being <coughs> sorry, weaponized itself. And what passes for or what anyone describes as misinformation is give or not. And we have that all the time being used in the UK with the oncoming online safety bill where misinformation is very much a target of the government in which they are going to demand that big tech remove certain pieces of information on the basis that they are not true. And the problem we've got is when you look at misinformation, a great piece of, not when I say great, a great example of this was the misinformation of the Wuhan lab leak, which actually um, it was argued and big tech went along with this, that the Wuhan lab leak was a conspiracy, anti-China. It was suppressed for a long time. Then, you know, it, you know, rather casually, they sort of ended up saying, oh, by the way, there might be a, a Wuhan lab leak. But, you know, by that stage, anyone who tried to discuss that was closed down. And, and that actually has meant that we haven't got any, enough evidence now to really understand whether there was a lab leak from Wuhan. So that was labelled misinformation. Though it was labelled misinformation, those of us who argued that the lockdowns were uh, having, going to cause a huge amount of collateral damage, they tried to suggest that that was also going to, you know, it was misinformation fostered by people who didn't even believe that COVID existed. I mean, I absolutely did, but I was opposed to lockdowns, the second and third lockdowns, certainly. So. What gets labelled misinformation is more problematic than just allowing them to use that concept to censor. So it sounds like you're saying, um, like, uh, most governments or all governments have sort of blown their shot. Like, they've, uh, they've, they've played the card of, you know, we need to uh, temporarily suspend your freedoms because there's an emergency. They played that card way too many times, such as with response, you know, dealing with COVID. And also on a cultural level, we've seen that people are way too uh, quick to cancel things. Um, so, at, so because of those uh, factors, it sounds like you, you don't trust governments currently to suppress any speech vis-a-vis -vis the Russian-Ukrainian war. Is that correct? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm a, a free speech absolutist at the best of times. And by the way, that means defending the right to publish lies, even though you should have the right to say they're lies. Uh, you know, this is kind of, but in order to, I mean, every time, I mean, apart from anything else, it just doesn't work at any kind of level. Because what you end up doing is creating a situation whereby you create a cynical to the point of nihilistic approach to truth. Because when they try and suppress information, it's got to the point now where if, because of the way the mainstream media uh, in, in many ways acted as a very partial commentator during the lockdown period. It's not just lockdown, that's just the most immediate thing that happened. But has generally kind of gone along with a particular narrative and not really allowed a, a range of views to emerge. That's kind of things like the BBC, but Channel 4 or whoever, right? It's got to the point where they 
that, that, that people have drawn the conclusion that therefore if they say black, I believe white, which is, by the way, unhelpful. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, I don't want people to develop a kind of nihilism where they're incapable, where, where you actually have a kind of epistemological crisis in a way. Where it, we are, it's almost as though opposition forces become like postmodernists and say there's no such thing as truth. And also, information that is suppressed is given a certain glamour. So it's assumed that if it's been suppressed, maybe there's something in it, even if, in fact, there's nothing in it, right? But once you ban it, you immediately are going to attract those people who are a bit more critical thinkers or dissident or don't just go along with things. You'll then say, aha, they're banning it, therefore I'm going to look into it. And it does send people down the rabbit hole. And because so much information was suppressed in the most immediate period under COVID, I think a lot of people did go down that rabbit hole and they ended up going on to, you know, the dark web or um, to, would see make it too much like that, but you know, I don't know about you, but I must have received during the lockdown period, every day I'd get 25 different videos of the latest thesis account, and that's the whole point, right? Otherwise, you have a kind of globalized version of events in which other people decide, and you as an individual can only lock on, lock on as an ongoer. And I, do, I am a Democrat, and I think politicians work for the individuals in a society, and that's the way it happens in the boundaries of a nation state. So that's clarifying that, but it's, it's not dissimilar with free... I mean, obviously, your emphasis on the individual is understandable in view of who I'm speaking to and the, and, and the organisation. Um, but actually, as it happens, individual agency is precisely what I was emphasising about audience. You know, what I'm saying is, who's going to decide? Which, is it, which person's going to decide that this is a lie and a piece of propaganda? I mean, have you worked that bit out, right? Because you'll be deciding on behalf of someone else, right? And what I'm suggesting is, even if you're in a situation whereby somebody is pumping out what you consider to be lies, um, you know, I don't agree with the libel law either. It's tempting to want to go, they're lies. And I mean, you know, if you saw what people said about me on social media, which some of you might have, or even if Wikipedia, should you look? I mean, it's just, it's lies. And obviously you kind of like want to go, can I sue someone, take them to court? I don't want you to think that's true. But what you have to do is to hold your nerve and just say, I have to trust that the individuals who encounter me or I can refute what is being said about me. Whereas if I hide behind saying, go to the law courts or saying, can you take that down? Then I, I, I hand over my agency, my individual freedom to someone else to make decisions about what, what, what is described about me. So I'd rather let the lies there and refute them and the main thing is, is that if I'm as an individual trying to work out what I think about um, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation, I've argued what I think, right? I, I, it, it is legitimate in a free society that there will be people who say, well, I disagree with you. I think that Zelensky is an, uh, a Western puppet. This is a proxy war fought by America. I mean, you know, we might disagree with that, right? But it's a, it's a view. And... I, I, and I think that then I should try and win the argument with that person, right? But we would have to make a decision that our fellow individuals are not allowed to hear that argument, right? And, and, and I'm saying, of course I should hear that argument, and we should have a better argument so that the individuals listening agree with us. Whereas if we say, no, our view's the only view, and that's a pack of lies and propaganda over there, the point is, it won't be you and I deciding for a start-off. And no disrespect to you know, 
the organisation that you work for, but I can assure you there'll be a lot of people deciding that you lot shouldn't be heard, right? It's like, I mean, what? why would you let you lot have the airway? This podcast would be considered misinformation and dangerous by all sorts of people. And so where do you, you know, where, when you say where do you draw the line, mine is I don't want anyone drawing the line, right? All I was saying was, when the bombs are coming down, right? We were, having, I mean, we were having this now, we were like stuck in this church, um, which is, by the way, a beautiful church. I have to commend you for finding this venue. Um, and I, I run the Academy of Ideas and we put on events. I'm definitely coming to this one and doing an event. It's brilliant. But anyway, we're stuck in this church. We were surrounded in this church. Uh, we couldn't get out. We didn't have food and drink and, and all the rest of it. And we were surrounded by Russian tanks, right? And, you know, all the rest of it. And then the people up the road who were trying to get us food and provisions, you know, turned on the radio and said, oh, no, they've all left the church. And the Russians said, oh, no, we're looking after them, go home, right? Then, obviously, I might be tempted in a war situation to go close that bloody radio station down quick because it's a life-and-death situation. And it, in a way, that's not even free speech. That's a different kind of thing. It's almost like incitement, like if you say, go over there and kill someone. So I, 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 I don't want to let ourselves off the hook by implying that we've got anything like that moral dilemma, because we haven't. We just haven't. But I'm, I, I still hope that I'd say that the problem is not the speech problem in Ukraine or Russia. And finally... Russia, you can see what happens if you let the authorities decide what's true. I mean, if you live in Russia now, somebody has decided a version of the truth and anything else is misinformation. They'd use the same argument. They say, we're at war. We're not going to let this pro-Ukrainian propaganda come through. We're not going to let American imperialism tell you a pack of lies about Russia. When, when, why should you hear that? So we, on your behalf, are going to take the decision that you should not listen to it. And, of course, because we don't believe, because we think, oh, yeah, but they're the bad guys, they're Russians. But it's the same theoretical argument, and it's intolerable. Yeah, well, by the way, we're, at, we're hoping to do uh, Claire Reed's Mean Tweets segment here later today. I'm kidding. But, um, okay, okay, but, like, let's, let's take an example. Like, um, suppose a, 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 a cl there's a clear aggressor attacking a, a, a country that clearly doesn't want any trouble, and within the country that is being attacked, there is an organization that is um, engaging in uh, treason. Like, they are, they are supporting the aggressor, they are uh, spreading misinformation that is clearly false. I mean, does that, is that not on the same sort of, uh, is that not in the same category as pointing at someone and say, go kill them? Well, I, I, honestly, I, I really don't think it is. I think, I think it's, it's, or it's at least has to be looked at very carefully. What, what I'm saying is, is that free speech is pretty sac sacrosanct, right? And it has to be pretty extreme for me to even contemplate this. But you've just said, you know, it's treason, and they're saying... So what are they saying? Take, you know, let's take Ukraine again. Ukraine is full of people with Russian origins, and some of them might be sympathetic to Russia. I mean, obviously not that many as it goes, but there will be some, right? Because it's a kind of complicated bit of the world, right? And you could say, and indeed it was said in relation to when uh, there was to be part of the uh, UK and when there was British troops there and there was a conflict that went on for a long time and, you know, a lot of my uh, notoriety is associated with, with uh, me being uh, siding with uh, the right of the Irish people in that conflict. 
that's treasonous and and that's what the government tried to say they and they tried to they introduced censorship to ban people from saying you know they wouldn't let uh, 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 certain people speak on the airwaves all of that went on and what 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 were the consequences of that well there was a number of consequences i mean first of all there ended up in grave injustices where people were put in prison wrongly like the birmingham six and the guildford four because they were irish and you couldn't defend them because then you were accused of being supportive of the one side so you get that going on for a start off saying would probably confront the power of local opposition right i don't want the state doing it right if if, if through kind of like you know good people just say well it's not i'm not having you come here saying all that and so you know like i say if in a lot of these things, we're either talking about armed conflicts, but you're saying that they're, they're putting out propaganda, and I think just argue when it, argue back sounds weird, but they're saying one thing, and you say, "God, look at it! Look, you're we're in Ukraine, right? You can say what you want, but look, there's dead bodies all over the street. You know what I mean? Or go, etc., etc." So, I think that you have to hold your nerve. I still think asking the authorities to ban speech is a very dangerous path to go down. It is. Uh, it sounded earlier like you said something about how this is the culmination of our post-war uh, setup. Do you remember what it is that I heard? Did you mean World War II? Or can you expand on what you were saying? Well, well, I, I think that the, the well, first of all, there is a real danger because after the Second World War, um, Europe was divided up um, between America, Russia, and oh, America, the Soviet Union, and the U and, and, and Britain. Um, and half of Europe was sold into, you know, they came Eastern Europe, right? I mean, they divided Germany. I mean, this was not a good. At, this was not good for millions and millions of people. And obviously, um, I don't want another Yalta. You know, I don't want that, that kind of redivision of the world. And that was kind of like the great powers at the end of the Second World War. Now, what everyone thinks, but uh, not what you think about the Second World War. All I'm saying is that wasn't an inevitable conclusion of the Second World War. And it has had a detrimental impact. And I think that the, then the end of the, the, uh, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, when it collapsed, which almost like it collapsed due to the internal inability for it to develop any kind of dynamic at all, left the West in this peculiar situation. Because I think that one of the things that's clear to me anyway is that the West gained a huge amount of a sense of itself from not being the East. Right, so the Cold War partly gave a sense of meaning to what it meant to be part of the free uh, um, uh, West, right? And um, I'm from a, a Trotskyist background, we'll all be delighted to know, and I, and I was uh, the publisher of LM Magazine, which was Living Marxism. And I mentioned that because I used to go out and sell left-wing newspapers, and, you know, lots of people would say, go back to Russia, right? That was kind of like, a you know... You know, you might not like it, go over there, even though obviously that was Stalinism and I was a Trotskyist, but, but, you know, that wasn't the kind of conversation you would have with the people who were saying, go back to Russia. They were, they were uh, understandably just basically saying, I'm not engaging with you. And that, you know, a lot of the kind of uh, dynamic around the virtues of free speech in the modern era were developed in relation to making a virtue of the West as distinct from the East. When the cold war ended you, you you have a situation in which there's great triumphalism and the west says we won right and and uh, now there's no alternative margaret thatcher said tina there is no alternative and we know francis Fukuyama said it's the end of history 
The problem was, was that then it became that the West had to justify itself without reference to at least we're not as bad as them. And there came a complacency in a way about what Western values were. And I think that the last 30 years has been a, a there's been a void at the heart of Western thinking that has allowed the emergence of the culture wars, that's people have rushed to film meaning in a way, and, and, and Western elites have not known what to do. And if, if anything, they've abandoned, they became very smug about, uh, smug, but, you know, they became technocratic and managerial in the way they understood that they needed to, because there was no opposition anymore, you know, kind of, you didn't have to worry about that. And so you basically just started managing the economy and viewing people as people to be done to. I mean, this is a crude rendition of this. But, uh, but as it happens, that kind of undermining of the agency of millions of people, I think is what led to the populist uprisings of 2016 because people just were, you know, just fed up of being treated in that way. And the elites were, were, were much happier in their transnational, uh, international, global gatherings um, you know, that's why the EU was so important for the UK, because, you know, you felt much better explaining a policy over there than explaining it to the British electorate. So that's, for those of us who were Democrats, why Brexit became a big thing for us to live in the EU. But anyway, um, I, I'm saying that all of that's not resolved, and it's obvious that America's in decline as, as, a, as a global police, uh, a, a policeman. I was nearly going to say, I think you're not allowed to say policeman, are you? I'm just like a police officer. Uh, as, a, as the global policeman, um, you can see that, obviously, we've got the rise of China, new formations, right? And so I think that the danger at the moment is that this war is going to and could lead to the redivision of the world in a different way. And I want to try and ensure that uh, freedom is is the winning he's on the winning side and if that means in this instance um even nato which i i think is a, a decrepit organization and 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 and, and, and is actually as indicated doesn't know what it's doing because it's not even united in relation to how it deals with ukraine that actually just because i despise a lot of the institutions of the west I do not despise what the West represents in terms of values and, and, and so on. But it's, it's almost as though we can't overcome the problems, which is why I think it's ended up being a kind of culture warsy rendition of how we... It, there's no unity within the West at all about what we think about this. And so that seems to me to indicate we've got a real problem. We do have a, a real problem, and by the way, I'm, I'm not sure if, I mean, some parts of America, even actual police officers are not really police officers anymore, but um, yeah, <laughs> um, so your loneliness uh, is relatable, I think. Uh, it sounds like, you know, first you're, uh, you're an anti-Soviet leftist, which is a lonely position, and now you, you don't like these freaks on the left, you obviously don't like these guys on the right. There, there's a lot of people that are uh, not singing your tune, and that's... Uh, yeah, that's 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 really something um, that I guess resonates probably with uh, with a lot of us watching and and here today. Um, now, I, I began the episode introducing us as saying we both walked away from God, you know, because we're in a church. Was that presumptuous? Or would you say you're a secularist, uh, an atheist? Yeah, I'm an atheist. Yeah. Um, I, 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 but you know, I'm a, I, anyone who's ever been in this situation will know that as an Irish Catholic, you never quite escape that one. So I'm a I'm an atheist, but. I'm no doubt a cultural Irish Catholic, and, and 
in this country, that does mean something. And, it, you know, part, partly, by the way, Irish Catholics in this country, um, historically, we're, we're slightly the outsiders anyway. And so you kind of, I suppose, always had a bit of an outsider thing. I mean, you know, partly immigrants and then Catholicism is obviously... Uh, was dealt a pretty hard blow by the emergence of the Church of England and the Reformation, which started here. So, you know. Um, but, I, but I think that culturally, I have a lot of respect for uh, religion. Uh, you know, I understand, I understand it. I understand the kind of community aspects of it. I understand the people wanting to come together. And I understand, and I've always thought about Christianity in particular, that, you know, a a religion that managed to say that what we should do is have a God that becomes man was a really humanist religion. You know what I mean? That's quite extraordinary, right? The kind of Christian ethic is, you know, God, in order to mean something, became an ordinary, humble man. And... I think, therefore, as a humanist, I get that bit, right? And it was also the case in terms of Jesus Christ as a, as a figure, um, that this was a figure who was, you know, a humble figure. And so, consequently, you know, I'm a lefty who romanticizes these sort of things. So I was very much uh, influenced by that over the years in terms of thinking of myself as a, uh, for many years as a kind of radical Catholic and all that stuff. Uh, not anymore, but, you know, when I was young. Sure. It's pretty amazing. Um, now, you're in Parliament, by the way, because I am visiting from America, so I don't know. So I'm, was that, am I correct? Yeah. Well, I, I, I am uh, in the House of Lords, so I am a baroness, and the House of Lords is a completely anti-democratic part of the uh, UK legislature. Um unelected, all appointed, um, so terrible, second chamber, but with a huge amount of power because actually the House of Lords gets to decide on legislation. And so I have been made a legislator. I'm an independent in the House of Lords, so I am not part of the party system, but um, I've been calling for the abolition of the House of Lords for years, and I accepted a uh, place in the House of Lords. So I had a group of six formers come to see me today, and one of them rather... Uh, uh, sheepishly said, you know, do you think there might be a problem with the fact you call for the abolition of the House of Lords, you're here? And I said, yes, the problem is that I'm a hypocrite. And it's true that I am, you know, there's a degree of hypocrisy. I had to decide whether to do it or not when they offered it me because I thought it was a joke and I couldn't believe they were offering it me. This was like two years ago. And I decided that maybe, you know, why would I say yes, all the rest of it? And then... I just thought at my age, maybe I could use it to stir things up and use it as a platform and take the hit of people calling me a hypocrite. And history will judge. I mean, I don't mean history's going to bother judging me one way or another, but what I mean is I don't care now. I can see why people would say, what a ridiculous thing for you to do. I try and do what I can there. And I also put all of everything I say or speak, I put on social media, not just vanity, but to be accountable in some way. And I do a weekly... Uh, inside the Lords, in which I kind of do behind the scenes. And so I try a bit to to do it, and I use it to, uh, you know, the Academy of Ideas, which is my passion, and the Battle of Ideas Festival, which uh, you're always involved in as an organisation, by the way, and I look forward to having you back again uh, this year in October when we do our big festival. But those kind of public events that we do, you know, I try and make sure that is what I'm still interested in doing, and I think that 
for the British public to understand what's really happening at the heart of Parliament, which is what I try and reveal is a good thing. Actually, there's a Russian angle here. Yesterday, um, there was a, a debate in the House of Commons which was calling for an investigation and a, a, a reveal about uh, um, Evgeny uh, Lebedev. He was also made a member of the House of Lords at the same time that I was. And Lebedev is the owner of the Evening Standard, London Stand Evening Standard, and obviously, as you know from his name, he's Russian. And there's been a, a real attempt to discredit, well, him. Uh, the, uh, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives were offering him a, a, uh, a place in the House of Lords. And um, so the Labour Party been making great hay on this and sort of going on and on and saying that the security forces warned about Lebedev. Lebedev, of course, says, um, you know, I was, I've been here since I was six, you know, I went to school here. His father was in the KGB. He says that the family have been anti-Putin critics for years. I have n I've never met him. I've no idea. He didn't come into the House of He's only been in the House of Lords once, apparently, and I never saw him. Um, so even though he's in the House of Lords, he's just got the title Lord Lebedev without actually attending. But the reason why it's significant was halfway through this debate, when the Labour Party were morally grandstanding over this issue, somebody read out a tweet that Lebedev had tweeted, in which he, tw he, he tweeted the note that he'd got from Keir Starmer, the head of the Labour Party, saying, Dear Evgeny, congratulations on getting your seat in the House of Lords. You know what I mean? And then somebody said, maybe he's off said that to everyone at the time. I said, he bloody didn't say it to me, let me tell you, right? So the, the thing about it is, is one thing on the censorship thing, to go back to war and censorship, is there has been this completely horrible anti-Russian stuff going on, right? And it's like, I mean, I've no idea whether Lebedev is dodgy or not, well, you'll know that, you know, you've had people banning uh, Dostoevsky. You've had people saying that we shouldn't, you know, that, that, that it's not just RT. It, it's sort of developed this sort of like anything Russian. And it, it does cause real problems because you might well say the Bolshoi Valet can't come over here. But when you then have people who are Russian dancers in this country being treated as though they're dodgy, then we've got a whole different ball game, right? And the same... <coughs> happened recently when one of the government ministers suggested that a Russian tennis players uh, shouldn't be allowed to play unless they denounced Putin. Now that's mandated speech, so that's a different version of free speech, which is not that you've said the wrong thing, but that if you don't say the right thing, you'll be cancelled. And it reminded me of the silence is violence stuff, right, which was you must get on bended knee, chant, you know, um, uh, Black Lives Matter slogans, or we will say that you're a racist. It's, no, it's, no, it's not good enough for you to not say anything. You have to actively repeat the words, or the, the, the thing which Jordan Peterson became well known for, but which we see all the time, which is the mandated use of pronouns, which is a big issue in terms of whether you use, you know, what pronouns, whether somebody can say, you've got to call me they, or Z, or what have you. This is mandated speech. Well, it seems to me that that mandated speech became, and this was the reason I'm mentioning that, is because you were talking about the confusion on the left and right. Because a lot of people on the right were arguing that if these people didn't say, condemn Putin, that meant that they were pro-Putin. 
I was thinking, God, only five minutes ago, you were going around saying that you shouldn't say that to people in relation to Black Lives Matters. You've got to be consistent on these things. And mandated speech is probably, in my view, almost most dangerous because censorship today is very rarely state censorship. It's the fear of being cancelled. It's the mandated speech. It's the nodding along because you're frightened if somebody knows what you think, you might get kicked out of polite society. It's the social opprobrium if people associate you with certain things. It's that terrible pressure that you feel all the time. Please don't, you know, raise this issue of gender. And sex. You know, it's the Labour Party squirming when somebody says, has a woman got a penis? You know, that kind of thing that's going on in the UK at the moment. Every hour on talk radio, they ask somebody. And they kind of go, oh, don't ask me, don't ask me. But, you know, it's like, it's like speech. Free speech is now being hemmed in in a different way not by censors, but by a kind of culture wars on both sides and a, and a, a real disregard for freedom. It's absolutely uh, ridiculous. And the, the irony, again, is all over. Um, and, I mean, yeah, they're pulling the word Russian, Russia off of restaurant signs uh, and banning Dostoevsky. And actually, uh, at the Ayn Rand Center UK, we're, we're actually, uh, out of support for Ukraine, we're actually going to stop promoting the Russian-born Ayn Rand. So that's our way of uh, helping out. Uh, of course, I'm joking. But, um, but Ayn Rand did say something that I was reminded of. Well, she didn't say it in these words, but uh, I think her philosophy points to this. And you mentioned that kind of once you're an Irish Catholic, you're always an Irish Catholic. And maybe you meant that culturally. Um, but um, I, Rand's philosophy, I think, uh, her reading of history points to the, the fact that although religion was largely uh, put in the back seat in the West, the ethics of altruism and also the, uh, a full understanding of what, what reason actually is, like a proper a way to uh, look at reality and gain credible information, was never quite uh, accomplished by the Enlightenment, leading us to these, you know, the last couple centuries of increasing chaos, certainly the last couple decades and last couple days of increasing chaos, confusion. Uh, people have no problem trampling the rights of individuals because who, who, who is this individual to... Uh, to be selfish and to want his his rights protected, and um, and and it seems also like uh, confusion is driving this lack of clarity. Um, so it, it's becoming increasingly impossible for people to even understand where they stand because of all all the uh, misinformation and lack of uh, lack of coherence. So yeah, it's. Uh, but isn't I, I mean I, I still think that the solution to the lack of clarity is less to, to, to worry about misinformation and more to say what we need is better information and to put out better information. And, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've had situations recently where I've been on uh, broadcast media where I've kind of listened to people come out with, you know, things which I consider to be an absolute non conspiratorial nonsense, to be frank. And... I've got into I, and and I've and I've had to try and challenge them, and the easiest thing is to want that person not to be given a platform. I mean, you kind of think, oh God, you know, God, they've got massive following now. There's going to be all these people, and then because I criticise them, I got attacked by all their followers and all those kind of things. But in the end, one of the problems is that I'm then having arguments with people who've actually got limited information, and so what? Or, and so what you want is them to have read more books, no more, not, not less. And, and the only way that you can really cultivate that is to encourage 
a different approach to ideas in which you you take you ha you have a certain humility in the face of what you don't know and you try and find out one of one of the things that's peculiar at the moment is just how certain people are having seen one youtube video you know i mean that kind of drives me mad you know i know this is true because i've seen it on youtube and i've got the evidence and it's like no that's a bit more to it really and and i mean even 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 in i mean you know somebody made a joke at one of our meetings recently but it has a really rang true which is said you know over the last two years everybody you've ever known has become kind of uh, expert in epidemiology and virology right and uh, you know everyone's like sort of like and now everyone's become an absolute expert in Eastern European politics, geopolitics, the whole history of Ukraine. And they've literally done it overnight because they've seen two YouTube videos. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, like and I, I, I'm very aware of the fact that there's loads of things I don't know. So you've got to be open-minded to the possibility that you're wrong. I mean, that seems to me to be what we've lost, right? We, we have to say, maybe, it's, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe everything I've said tonight is wrong. And part of the fresh, confident way that, that a free society deals with things is to allow yourself to be challenged. And if somebody says, you really should, you know, read this, think about this, consider this, that you say, maybe I should. And I have changed my mind on things over the years. I mean, obviously. I mean, you know, if, if you consider that the, a lot of the people who are doing the cancelling at the moment are younger people, um, and I kind of wrote a book about that called I Find That Offensive, which is about that generational split with young people in particular being those who are leading the council culture and stuff. And when I was talking to these young people today, I could see that a number of them were very much into identity politics and hated me. Um, and, and I was just saying to them, look, you've got to bear in mind, you know, I thought I knew everything at 17 too, right? And I was convinced that my way was the only, you know, I thought I had the greatest insights historically that anyone's ever had. Luckily, there were adults who had the confidence to look me in the eye and tell me I was talking rubbish, right? And that maybe I ought to do a bit more thinking. But I mean, if you actually say, no, I know what I think, I find it offensive if I hear any of these views, you're effectively saying that the 17-year-old you is the permanent intellectual state you'll be forever because that's the thing you want to hide behind. You say, no, I don't want to hear anything but my views or I'll be damaged by it. That means that you're going to forever be 17. Now, you know... You're all a lot younger than me, but let me assure you, if you're forever the 17-year-old self, right, this is a very immature, dull world you're going to be in, right? And what a load of adventures you're going to miss out on, all those intellectual adventures where you read things and get really enthusiastic about Ayn Rand one minute, Marxism the next minute, whatever it is. But the point is, you eventually decide, actually, this is what I believe. But even then, you've got to be open-minded. Are, are you are you conflicted at all? Because on one hand, it's all about the open marketplace of ideas. On the other hand, we've got such uh, an abundance of communication with the internet, and what we see is 17-year-olds are running the world, along with 14-year-olds and a bunch of other misinformed, uh, um, you know, zealots, a bunch of like uh, int uh, emotionally. A confused and excitable, uh, uninformed people are deciding whose career is going to end. They're tweeting. They're making stuff trend. It could be affecting the outcomes of elections. I mean, it isn't. Uh, I mean, it, do you see any conflict there? Of course I do. But you know, then it's up to the adults to grow up, right, yeah. and to stand up to them. I mean, what, what, you know, I, I, I gave a talk recently to a bunch of senior leading. Um, uh, people in the city of London, uh, the financial sector, who are all complaining about their young staff 
being too woke and they didn't know what to do. These are the most powerful, rich people in London and they're going, oh, it's terrible, our diversity officers making us do this. It's like, well, at some point, you might have to take a bit of a plunge and say no. You know, why is it that, I mean, that's what's happened to the Labour Party. The Labour Party won't look their own membership in the eye and say, you're absolutely talking rubbish. I, I do not believe that Keir Starmer does not know that a woman has not got a, a, a penis, by the way. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, he does know, but he's frightened that if he pins, I hate to be going down that route, but you know what I mean. But I mean, it, it, he can't say, look, only a woman has got a vagina, right? Because he's worried that the young activists in the Labour Party will then cause trouble for him. And all I can say is that means that he should not be the leader of a political party. And, by the way, Boris Johnson is no better. So don't let me, uh, until the, the, the Conservative Party at the moment has organized an international conference on you know, gender issues, which they were calling the COP26 of, uh, uh, um, of gender until recently. They've gone a bit quiet. And you know, this is after they did COP26. I mean, this is the Conservative Party did COP26 and have introduced net zero as a policy you know, that we're not allowed to debate or discuss, as you know, all that, right? So they do it thinking, oh, this will keep all the young green people happy. And I think, grow up. I mean, that's what leadership is. The one thing you gain from being older is that you should be more confident in your views. That's not to say that the interesting thing that's happened historically forever is that young people are the young Turks. You know, they're kicking against the pricks, right? That's how change has happened. You know, if young people weren't the rebels, we'd all be stuck in some 1950s hellhole, right? So you do need young people to fight back. The problem is the young people are kicking against the, the pricks, and the pricks are going, come in, come in, we want to be more like you. So the creative tension between generational, ten generational change has been abandoned where older, more well-informed people are not prepared to have it out with younger, potentially less well-informed people. And that's where the madness lies. So it's a loss of nerve. And what I'm saying is the West has lost its nerve about Western values. And you'll know that, that you know, if you run a, a museum, the British Museum, some of the great museums in this country, the people who run those museums do understand the importance of the great uh, contents of those museums, right? They know the traditions that they are put in charge of. But they're so frightened that people will say they're too male and stale and uh, what's, male, stale and what's the, whatever the other one is, that, they, that, they, that they're terrified. So they develop a kind of self-loathing uh, 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 shtick where they get all these like, young people in to advise them how they can decolonize. They're destroying Western culture as we speak. And then they blame the young. You can't blame the young if the older people are not prepared to stand up for what they believe in. What, we've socialized young people into that, right? I mean, by the way, they're annoying as hell. And obviously, you kind of want to go, those people who work in a publishing house who are 21 who say, if you publish that book, we're, we're going to all walk out. And you want to, I mean, you can't believe the arrogance of them for saying such a philistine thing. But if the head of the publishing house doesn't say, well, that's very interesting that you want us to not publish that because it offends you and it will cause you trauma, go and get a job somewhere else. 
if they accommodate to them, then don't blame the young people, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I'll be the first to say as an Ayn Rand Center, uh, you know, host, um, the young people are following exactly what the adults tell them. They're going to school, they're learning what the adults are teaching them, and uh, their rebellion against the adults is superficial in my, my view of things. They're being taught to destroy and, uh, and shatter and, uh, and cancel. Um, it really blows my mind, I got to say, as, as an American, to hear someone who's in any way involved in politics to A, be an atheist openly, and B, to have this much of an opinion. Good Lord. I mean, in America, politicians will not risk this much. Uh, they will completely uh, be milquetoast and just try to, try to lay low and get through the next election. They're, they're ballsy when it, you know, when it resonates with the, you know, with the populace. You know, populism is on the rise, but not actual radical, um, it, like, first-handed uh, type of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To be fair... Um, I would just like to point out that I can't, the electorate can't get rid of me. So one of the undemocratic aspects of the House of Lords is that I can, I mean, I can be cancelled in other ways, but um, one of the downsides of the House of Lords, good sides for me if I'm in it, is that the electorate uh, can hate my guts, think I shouldn't be a politician, and they can do F all about it. And that is anti-democratic, and that's why the House of Lords should be abolished. That's, a, that's, so, that's so meta. Okay, in the few minutes we have left, let's take a question from the audience back there. Project your voice. Yeah, well, that's why I'm not a Randian, yeah? I'm a Democrat. I mean, I'm a radical Democrat, and I think that a second chamber was set up in exactly the way that you suggested because the elites don't trust the demos, and therefore they want a way of saying we have wise heads. I mean, if you see who's in the House of Lords, wise heads is not what you'd say, right? I mean, let me tell you. Um, and who decides who's wise and who are the experts? And that is the argument that we heard only recently during COVID, you know? Like, don't trust those nutters you know that we've got the experts here to tell you what to do right and it infantilizes individuals it doesn't actually do anything other than talk down to you and it, it assumes that, that some people are to be trusted so i know it doesn't it doesn't a second chamber is problematic in and of itself the scrutinizing of legislation at a technical level needs to be done mainly because just at a technical level um, but that's not, there's no need for a second chamber for that. So I, I, I really do think that we should abolish the House of Lords. But your argument is the one that's used. And it's also said, well, the House of Lords is free in order to be able to do what it wants. You know, you know, it's not 
because we're not accountable to anyone. We have the freedom. But I mean, I, one of the reasons I really, really despise the House of Lords was that after the 2016 referendum in which the majority of people voted to leave the European Union, it was the House of Lords that absolutely led the rebellion to stop that happening. And they nearly succeeded. I mean, they nearly trashed a popular referendum. They nearly got away with it. And the House of Commons used the House of Lords that way and used the fact that the House of Lords couldn't be undermined. And that would have... I mean, you know, the only reason that I stood as a candidate for the Brexit party, because I wasn't interested in being involved in politics, was because I was so worried that if this betrayal occurred, that there would be a very unpleasant populist reaction. And I really wanted to ensure that it had... I, I just I couldn't bear them to get away with this. The establishment were just basically... And they used the House of Lords. The House of Lords is a very dangerous instrument at times. Well, um, well, when we began this episode, all I knew we had in common is that we're both going to hell. But, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, again, like just hearing uh, how, uh, how disillusioned you are or how lonely you are politically and philosophically from all these various people. I mean, even when you say like Western values need to be protected, I know there's a lot of other people saying Western values and they mean, you know, they mean white people or something like that. And you need to also distance yourself from them. So... Uh, I know how it is. I think a lot of us know how it is when you constantly uh, feel like left out. I know, and you said even the electorate hates you. So, uh. by the way, I'm not. I, don't, I neither feel lonely, and the electorate quite like me. Um, I, what I'm saying is, I'm not elected. But oh. just just one thing on on the Western values and, and one thing is, as and I, I think this is so important. You know, the Western Western values I mean, like enlightenment ideals around sovereignty and free speech. For me, these are radical ideas that have universal appeal and have liberated people universally. I mean, you know, I am a lefty, right? I fought for women's liberation. I was uh, involved in fighting racism for years, and I'm not saying that in any kind of, like, tick box way so nobody can say I'm a racist. What I mean is it was those ideals which allowed me to understand the importance of equality. Uh, the importance of equality as a notion. Now, that I know in this audience is probably likely to be, uh, uh, could be uh, 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 controversial. But I believe that people should be treated equally under the law, right? That, you know, at the ballot box and in the law, you know, and under the law, we are all equal. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, the, the garbage guy or you're the, or, or, or you're the queen, or, or you're not probably not the queen, but, you know, or you're a baroness, right? You are all equal, right? And for me, those concepts of, of um, the French Revolution are the things that have driven me on, you know, and I'm, I'm unapologetic about that. So what I hate is, is that the, the, the relativism that we've seen recently has meant those values have been, stole, have been treated as though they are the enemy of ordinary people, whereas actually they are the key for ordinary people to be able to change history. That, that otherwise you're just sitting there. These are the things which we need for liberation, all of us. Well, a lot of us said at the Ayn Rand Center prefer the American Revolution to the French one, but... Um, I'll have either, by the way. I'm fine. Hey, at this point, I'll take any kind of uh, change. I'm kidding. But uh, I think we even got a, flu a few uh, Claire Fox fans here today, so, you know, it's, it's not a completely uh, hostile audience or anything like that. 
All right, and I hope uh, the everybody here stay, sticks around for the next event. We've got Yaron Brook and Andrew Doyle. They're going to be talking about art in the age of wokeness. Thank you, everybody, for watching at home, and thank you for the Super Chats, Jonathan, Robert, Bonnie, and Sammy. You guys picked a hell of a day not to ask any questions. Look at us over here. I'm trying to figure out what the hell I've gotten myself into. And apologies for the laggy live stream. We will have a high-quality recording posted ASAP. And, uh, yeah, stick around for the event with Yaron and Andrew. And